in between meals, right? <laughs> but fasting is fasting. <laughs> fasting is important. It's, it's one of those things where you hate to do it, but but it's good for your flesh to to fast. But this week, we are going to talk about the purpose of your church and your pastor. So um, so as as we begin, let's let's talk for just a few minutes on. Uh, the faithfulness of God. Really, we cannot begin to discuss our faithfulness until we first understand God's faithfulness to us. And I say understand, really I should say try to understand because really it's, it's beyond our understanding. One verse in Psalms says that God's faithfulness to us is like the rising of the sun. In other words, you can count on it. You know that no matter how dark the night is, at some point the sun is going to come up and, you're, and, and it's going to be day again. It's going to drive away the shadows. That's what God's love is like for us. That's what his faithfulness is. He did not save us and leave us just to figure out how to stay saved. But God has given all of us everything that we need tonight in order to be saved. He's given you all the tools He's given you everything you need to live a life that is victorious, that, that is above sin, above reproach, and a life that is holy. And so he has made certain commitments and promises to us that assure us that he will continue to be faithful to us. First of all, the Lord promised us that he will be faithful in forgiving us our sins. 1 John 1 and verse 9 says, If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this verse was not written to sinners. It was written to saints. So he's not telling us how to get our sins remitted at the point of salvation. Rather, he's saying after you've come to the Lord and after you've been baptized and after the blood has been applied to your life, you're going to sin. You're going to mess up. I'm probably the only one here that's ever messed up since he's been saved. Amen. <laughs> amen. I got amens on that. Okay. Now, the truth is, is that we all routinely come short sometimes. Uh, but thank God there's grace. And grace is not a license for loose living. Grace is a higher law of empowerment that we can live by faith that every morning when we get up, we get on our knees and we, and we plead to God for the grace and the mercy that we need that day to make it through the day. And he empowers us through the Holy Ghost. So he's faithful in forgiving us of our sins. Secondly, he is faithful in a committed relationship to us. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, Let your covet conversation be without covetousness and be content with the things that you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee. And I will never forsake thee. That is a pretty incredible promise. Because understand that we are like in a symbolic marital relationship with God. So what the Lord is promising us is that irregardless of our unfaithfulness to him, God still says, I will continue to be faithful to you. What kind of husband would ever make that promise to his bride? What kind of husband would ever stand at the altar and say, now I know that you're going to cheat a little bit, you're going to have some affairs, but I want you to know right here on this wedding day that as soon as you get done cheating, you can come back to me and it'll be all right. 
Everybody's sick on their hands. No way. But God said, I will be faithful to you. Not for our sakes, but for his sake. Deuteronomy 7 and 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth uh, covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I thank God that he doesn't treat us like we treat him. Sometimes people have been known to go days without praying. But what if, and sometimes even weeks, and some, sometimes people don't pray at all. What if God went days or weeks without ever speaking to us? And we hear from God a lot more than we would think. You might say, well, I don't really hear from God. You do hear from God. You hear from God every time your pastor preaches. Somebody said, if you want God in an audible voice, pick out your Bible and read it out loud. That's God talking to you in an audible voice, in your audible voice. If you want to hear God in an audible voice, come to church Sunday morning I knew of a lady that prayed for God in an audible voice regarding a specific point of direction. And you know what the Lord did? He gave her an audible voice in the form of her pastor that Sunday morning. And she recognized, she realized, she told me, she says, I knew that, is, that when he got done speaking that the Lord quickened to me my prayer. And I knew that his message was the answer to my, to my questions. So when you hear your pastor speaking it's God speaking to you, not in his voice, but in your pastor's voice. So in a sense, in an audible voice. He is faithful in time of trouble. Second Thessalonians 3 and 3. But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. The idea there is that we are in the palm of his hand. And that evil may fall all around us, but it will not come nigh unto us. That we have a promise that no matter what happens... In our life, that God said, I am your refuge, I am your strong tower. No matter what happens in your life, you can always come to me. My name is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it, and they are safe there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. During times of trials and temptations, God will speak to you. God will give you a word. It's only during the tests, as Noah and I learned last night, in our, in our weekly Bible study, it's only during the tests that God is silent. Because what happens whenever the teacher tests, passes out the test? Teacher's not teaching then. He's silent. So when you're going through things and God has given you words and, and you're getting the comfort of the Lord and you're just receiving things left and right, might be a trial, might be a temptation of sorts, uh, but the tests come when it seems like God is silent and nothing makes any sense. And here's the thing. If you pass the test, you get promotion. But if you fail, you redo the grade. Isn't that exciting? So really, there's not a whole lot of options because the answer is always the same during the test. Trust in the Lord. That's the answer no matter what it is. That's what God wants you to do. That's the answer to it. It's not complicated. It's not, you don't have to have a degree in theology to understand that. You don't have to have the gift of prophecy or revelation or wisdom or teaching. That's your answer. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. 
and he will direct your paths. But God is faithful. Um, And then there's our faithfulness to God. So the first area of faithfulness we will look to is at we will look at is our faithfulness to God in personal relationships. It would be wrong of us to believe that we can be born again and then not be faithful to God yet still expect to make it to heaven. Did you know that God honors those who are faithful to him? Do you want to be honored by God? Psalms 31 and 23 says, "O Lord, said, O love the Lord, all ye his saints, for the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Psalms 101 verse 6 says, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walks in a perfect way, he shall preserve me. If you want God watching your steps, every step of the way, be faithful. And if you are faithful, God says, I'm not going to ever promise you that the sun's always going to be out and the wind's always going to be to your back. But I will promise you this. I will watch over you like a hawk. I will make you the apple of my eye. I will make sure that nothing ever destroys you. That, that every, every battle that you fight will end in victory. Proverbs 28 and 20 says, A faithful man shall abound with blessings. Do you want your life to abound with blessings? Do you want God literally to be proud of you? I mean, not proud, but in a, in a biblical sense, pleased with you, like God was with Job, to the point where he was willing to, not just to test Job, but kind of brag on Job a little bit, to the enemy. Have you considered my servant Job? Because God knew what was in Job. And God knew that no matter what was stripped away from him, that at the end of the day, Job would be faithful to God, although he did emotionally get distressed and he got discouraged and down, but he never sinned against God with his lips. So God expects us to be faithful to him. We can look at the book of Hosea. The entire book is the story of a man named Hosea who God says, I want you to go marry Gomer. She was, uh, to say the least, a very unfaithful lady. Uh, She left him and, and went after several others and she had multiple affairs. Several years later, God told Hosea to go back to Gomer and get and and buy her back. And he found her on an auction block and he bought her for just a few pieces of silver, took her back into his home, cleaned her up and made her right again and said, now I am reestablishing my marital relationship with you. But the point of that book was, is that so great was man's love for her that he continued to be faithful to her until the time that she becomes faithful to him again. And that is what God does. You know what? God does not destroy the backslider. He remains faithful to them, even though they are not faithful to him, even though many times they are not in their thoughts, yet God still loves that backslider and is still working and wooing that backslider and wants that backslider back in his kingdom again. So God was using the book of Hosea to show his deep love for us, as well as to illustrate the fact that if you are going to serve God, it is required in stewards that you be faithful. We can look at the book of Revelation, how God rejected the entire church of Laodicea and said, you are lukewarm, you're not hot, you're not cold, because they didn't have that red-hot passion and love for God. Instead, they were in love with the world, and they had been so unfaithful that the Lord had to stand outside of the door 
of the church and knock in order to gain entrance again to that church. I never want him to be like that in my home and in my life. I want him to be a welcome, not a guest, but I want him to be the head of my home at all times. So we must be careful to keep our faithfulness to God so that nothing will come between us and him. So the first thing that God calls us to be faithful to is in our own personal relationship and commitment to him. And after that, though there are several other areas of our lives that God calls us to be faithful in, which we are going to be talking about in the coming weeks, um, faithfulness to our spouses and our families. We could talk about faithfulness in our finances, and we will discuss that eventually. But tonight we're going to look at the fact that God calls us to be faithful to a local church. I say local church because we can say, I've heard a lot of people say, well, the church is not in the four walls of the building, which is true. That is not the church, but that is the church building. That is the place where the church gathers. Amen. And so because we gather here, God wants your gathering to be among us. (laughs) Amen. So God has given each of us a church for a number of reasons. Number one is friendships. I can remember as a teenager, for the most part, I grew up in church. All of my friends, all of my closest friends were always in church. I thank God for that. As a teenager, it's really important that you have friends that are deeply rooted in church because when you start getting friends that are, and it's not a bad thing to to have friends at school. My own children have friends at school, but your most intimate group of friends should be of those of like precious faith. I've always believed that because remember this, I heard a message from Jerry Jones many years ago at a camp meeting called Amden had a friend. And, uh, And I don't have time to talk about that, but friends, bad friends can influence you in the wrong direction. Secondly, there's learning. God has designed a program for you to learn and to grow. And you cannot do that if you're not here at church. Personal development um, is also gathered here at church. There's service and ministry. God just doesn't want you to sit there on a pew for the rest of your life and collect dust and warm that pew. But he has a plan for you. He's got a ministry, something that only you can do. Now, it might not be public speaking. It might be cleaning the church. But know this, whatever God calls you to, God honors, God bestows more honor on the things that men do not bestow honor on. There's a place in in the book of Corinthians where Paul talked about that very thing. He said, God... Just as we put more honor in referencing our physical bodies, we, we, give, we give more honor to the less calmly features. In other words, we spend, clo- we, we spend money to buy clothes, not to clothe our face, but to clothe because that is the most calmliest feature of your body. Is your face, your eyes, your smile. It's what everybody looks at and recognizes. But very few will ever recognize your shoulders. Or your back. They're less calmly features. So we spend money and we put honor on those less calmly features that others really don't care about. And so there are places in ministry in the church that are naturally given honor to by men. That's why Paul said, give honor to whom honor is due. But those that men, those positions that men do not honor, that we do not clothe, God clothes more so with honor. And honor equals rewards. 
So when we get to heaven, the people that are going to get rewarded the most or the greatest rewards are those that may, may never have gotten any honor publicly. And so the point is, is not that everybody needs to clean the church. But the point is, is that whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord and not as unto men. And God will give you honor for that. Amen. And so, so there's ministry. There is worship here. You can worship at home, and, and we all do that, I know. But there is nothing like worshiping with, with other believers. There is nothing in the world like it. There is there's power in it. There's a special power in it. So to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. So seeing that we just touched on the fact that God is a faithful God, it would be logical to assume that he is calling us to be a faithful people. So after all, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So I would imagine that he would demand that his bride be faithful. So the first area that he requires you to be faithful in is the church. I remember I remember whenever I pastored, my wife and I won um, this, this, I would say couple, but it really was a mother and her daughter. And they came to me one day, and, and we, we, I was you know, discussing something with them, and, and, and I don't remember which one it was, but one of them asked me, she said, man, I, just, I don't know if I could make it, because you know, there's all these, all these things that I'm coming up against, and, and I've got all these problems, and I, I just don't understand. And this is the advice that I gave her. I said, her, her name was Cher. I said, Cher, there's one thing that I can tell you to do, that if you will do this, this one single thing, I promise you, you will make it. Matter of fact, backsliders that don't do, or people that do not do this one thing, they never make it. And the, and the people that do make it, no matter how weak they start, they get strong. And it is this one thing, come to church. If that's all you do, you'll make it. Because when you're here at church, you're going to get everything that you need. You're going to hear from God. You're going to rub shoulders with other believers. When you're down, you're going to get encouraged. When you're in sin, you're going to get convicted. When your body is sick, you're going to get healed. Your level of faith will rise. You just simply have to be here when the doors are open. If you will commit to that, Wednesday night, don't be a Sunday morning Christian. That doesn't show up on Wednesday night Bible study. Wednesday night, Sunday morning, during revivals, prayer meetings, show up at all these things. Just simply be there, and God will honor that. So God expects us to be faithful in attending worship services. Many times in the Old Testament, the people were commanded to gather together for worship. As a matter of fact, even in the New Testament, when they were still under the law of Moses, even Christ himself consistently attended the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This is from Luke 4 and verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up for to read. This is what they did. It was his custom. Custom means habit. It's easy to come to church when you're in the habit of doing it. When you get out of the habit, May not, it's not so easy anymore, is it? When you get out of the habit of coming to church, because bad habits are picked up a lot easier than good habits, right? You know, I, I read somewhere that it takes 21 days to, to form a habit. So, just 21 days. So, if that be true, then you could form a habit of being at church if you will just come three weeks in a row. 
And then it'll become like, you won't even have to debate, am I coming to church on Wednesday nights? It's just like, it's not even a question in your mind. You know, I am going to be there. The apostles were faithful in their attendance to worship as well. Luke 24, verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. Christ's resurrection was on the first day of the week. Mark 16 and verse 9. Now when Jesus was risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. Also, the first day became known as the Lord's Day. Revelation 1 and 10 John said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard a voice behind me as of a trumpet. It also became uh, uh, the disciples' day for gathering together for worship. That first day of the week. John chapter 20 verse 19 describes how one week after the resurrection, the disciples met together again on the first day of the week and Jesus appeared to them. Uh, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be unto you. You know what? He still appears when we gather together. His presence is still here. The Holy Ghost fell on the waiting disciples on Pentecost Sunday. Again, that was the first day of the week, Acts 2 and 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The disciples of Troas met on the first day of the week, Acts 20 and verse 7. The apostle Paul instructed the Corinthian church to give offerings on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. So again, our focus here is not uh, on one specific day of the week that we have to gather together. So the emphasis is not on a specific day of the week, but rather it is to emphasize That gathering together for worship and fellowship with other believers was always a biblical model and was always part of God's plan. So now just for clarification, the seventh day or the Sabbath, as stated in the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, was part of the ceremonial law that pointed to Christ as our ultimate rest. So this is why we don't meet on Saturday. Uh, The Sabbath day was abolished at the cross. This is Colossians 2 and verse 14. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it out of the way by nailing it to his cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Verse 16 says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for celebrating uh, or for not celebrating certain holy days or the new moons, ceremonies, or, or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Galatians 4 and verse 9, again he says, So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? Verse 10, you are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you, perhaps all my hard work was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead for you to live as I do, freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. 
Paul said, I am free from the ceremonial aspect of the law. That's why he could say, when I was in Rome, I did as the Romans do. When he went back to Jerusalem, that was the law there. So he, he, it was as if he was under the law of Moses when he went back to the city of Jerusalem. But when he was in Rome, it would have done him no good to keep the laws there because that was not the law of the land. So look what else Paul has to say. Romans 14 and verse 5 says, In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another, while others still think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Theoretically, it'd be fine for us to meet on Saturdays. Verse 6, those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor Him, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. He's trying to reconcile those that kept the law versus those that did not keep the law. And so he's saying, whatever you do, if you choose to keep the law, fine, but do it as unto the Lord and don't condemn others who don't do that. So being plugged into a church community is integral to your walk with God. When, where, and what day you meet or don't meet is not the real issue. We are called, we are just called to be plugged in and to not ever forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So God realizes and wants us to realize the value of worshiping with people of like precious faith. Because with the world and the condition it's in, especially right now, it is imperative that we have time set aside to come together and renew our spirits and so that you can hear a fresh word from God. Without faithfulness to the house of God, you're going to miss worship and teaching and preaching and fellowship that are vital to your walk with God. Let me tell you this, you cannot and will not make it on your own. It's impossible. No matter how strong you are, no matter how spiritual you are, no matter what your heritage is, you cannot make it on your own. It would be foolish to think that you could get a job and never go to work and yet get paid. Actually, that's what some people actually think. But they're going to find out soon enough what the real world is like. So it is foolish for us to think that we can profess to have a relationship with God and yet be inconsistent with our church attendance and still make it to heaven. Because some people are disciples and others are just part of the crowd. And they're just there for the loaves and fishes. That crowd will go away eventually. That crowd eventually will get blown away with the chaff and the wind. Because there is coming a day when everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. And God is going to remove the wheat from the tares. And we're either going to be in or we're going to be out. We're either going to be holding on and clinging to God. And you know what? I don't think that that day is very much farther down the corner. I don't think that it is at all. Joel 2 and 16 says, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children. Again, gather your people together. Uh, Romans 10 and 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How does faith come? By hearing the word of God. Now, you hear the word of God at your home when you read the Bible, but you also hear from God here at this church. So it makes sense that you would want to be in a place where you are hearing from God. And you know that God is specifically asking us to get together for corporate worship. In Hebrews 10 and verse 23, he says, this is from the New Living Translation, let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. 
Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And, not, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do. But encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing ever so near. So how are we supposed to motivate one another to acts of love and good works? The answer is found in the next verse where he said, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's how we do that. A lot of things can happen in in your life by being at church. God can speak to you directly. How many has ever got a word from God at church when you couldn't get a word on your own in prayer at home? God can fill you with the Holy Ghost. How many here was filled with the Holy Ghost in the actual church setting? Most of us here was. I was. Um, God can give you some form of direction for your life and where it's heading at this very moment if you're here at church. God can send another believer with a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom or a word of prophecy. That happens when you're here at church. If you're not at church, then you are missing your access to the gifts of the Spirit and the fivefold ministry. What was the fivefold ministry given for? The perfecting of the saints, the maturity, bringing them into a place of maturity. That's why you need the prophets. That's why you need the evangelists. The evangelists gather, the teachers ground, the pastors shepherd, and they guard. And there are others, uh, other aspects to those ministries, but those ministries, by and large, are here within the walls of this church. And when you say things like, well, Wednesday night is not that important. Sunday morning is too early. Or it's raining today. And all the numerous other excuses we can come up with. When you say those things, you are missing an opportunity to receive something from God. Every time you come here, you will not leave the same way you came. Direction that God may want to give you for a specific time, you could miss it. If you don't come to that service. Ministry that God may want you to accomplish in someone's life through you. You might miss that opportunity. And some may say, well, can't God (coughs) speak to me at home? You think he only speaks to me at church. First of all, how many of you actually, how many of us actually when we skip church? Some of you might, some of you might do this. But how many of you actually, when you skip church, you stayed home to read the Word and meditate on God or pop in a good preaching DVD to watch and have your own altar call? Come on. Most of the time when people say, I can have church at home, that's just an excuse because they are not having church. Watching Jimmy Swagger on TBN doesn't count as having church. <laughs> Nothing against Jimmy Swagger, but, you know, he's a TV preacher. He's going to tell you what you want to hear. You need a preacher. You need a real man of God that can point his finger in your nose and say, you need to get right. That's the only way you're going to get to heaven. Amen. You can't have that, you know, those feel-good preachers that just pat you on the back and tell you how good you are. Sometimes you need a prophet to preach you under the altar. Amen. And that's the difference between a sheep and a goat. See, you know, I had an old one-time preacher that said you can only tell the difference between a sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing by how they howl when they're skinned. <laughs> he was an old-time preacher, and he knew how to skin. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Sometimes God, the Holy Ghost, needs to skin us and, and, and get the wickedness out of us. But... What is it that could keep you from getting here when the church doors are open? For those of you that are parents, if your kids have to ask you, are we going to church tonight? Something is wrong. Because what you're teaching them when you stay home 
from Wednesday nights for whatever reason. I'm not talking about I'm sick tonight or once in a while we have to work. They're legitimate or on vacation. There are legitimate reasons why sometimes we just are forced to miss. But for the most part, your kids should know, oh, it's Wednesday night. This is what we do. If we didn't come to church on Sunday morning, I don't, we would, it wouldn't even feel like a Sunday to us. It would feel weird. If, I mean, if we stayed home on Wednesday nights, I don't even know what we do with ourselves. <laughs> We've just been doing it for so long, but that's the way it ought to be. That's called habits. And those are good habits. Those are customs. So long-lasting revival only comes when it begins in our home and with our families. We have to teach our kids. We, we have to stop feeling like the church needs to be 100% responsible for the teaching of our children. The teachers should be the parents. Not the schools, especially not the schools. I want them teaching my kids 2 plus 2 and, and, and all that stuff, but I don't want them teaching in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. I don't want them teaching any of that. I want, I want to pass that on to my children. I want the church that I attend to pass that on to them. The strength of the church is based on the strength of the families in the church. My kids know you either are going to be a Bible quizzer or you're going to read the Bible through. Luke's reading the Bible through. He's caught up on his Bible reading. He's not getting to the point. Brag on my kid a little bit. He's not getting to the point where that's like the first thing he does in the morning. He doesn't go and get, well, he does go and get the iPad, but he reads the Bible on the iPad. He's got a Bible out. I see him because I'll, I'll be praying and I'll, I'll see him making his way in. And I know he's got that iPad and I know I don't even have to ask anymore. The first thing he does was go lay down his bed and he reads his Bible. Most of the time, the first thing he does, that's called habits. We got to teach our kids habits. You got to instill, you know, if they're old enough to read a book from cover to cover, why can't they read the Bible from cover to cover? Take your kid out on Wednesdays, or not on Wednesdays, but take your kid out on a Saturday morning to a good Bible bookstore and have them pick out their own version of the Bible. I don't think it has to be a King James Bible. And you know what? They'll be excited about it. It only takes 15 or 20 minutes a day. I mean, it doesn't take a long time. So, that's what makes strong families. And the strength of each family is based on their individual walk with God. Have you ever asked yourself why a pastor always tries to get people to come to church? It's not because if we have so many in attendance, then he's going to get a bonus from the United Pentecostal Church. Or get his name on a plaque somewhere. It's because he hears from God for your soul and your spiritual well-being. I know that many of you are teachers, so you know how, often, how long it takes to put together a Sunday school lesson. I can tell you, for a message, it takes at least that long, depending on how much time you spend. So, and we're not just talking about the hours, but, but the days of fasting and, and, and the prayer that goes into it. And if you are not here to hear what God gives him, then, then he is not able to be the most effective pastor for you that he can be. For a few minutes, I want to talk to you about the role of a pastor. And so, first of all, I know that being a pastor is, is a very serious responsibility. The Bible often refers to a pastor as a shepherd and the congregation as a sheep. Did you know that one day our, our pastor and every pastor will stand before God Almighty 
before the angels and all the saints, and he will give account for how he pastored this church. That's a scary thought. And it's not a position you ever want to seek. You just want to, if, if God calls you to pastor, you just want to let him open the doors. I, I've never understood why people politic their way into positions. I never have understood that. Thank God our pastor is not a politician. But a shepherd is responsible for feeding the flock, for watching out for the flock, for protecting the flock, for guiding the flock on where to go. 1 Peter 5 verse 2, again from the New Living Translation, says, Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And then Ephesians 4 and verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, this is the fivefold ministry, and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints. That's bringing them into a place of spiritual maturity, for the work of the ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ. That passage tells us that it was God who gives us pastors. So he has a serious responsibility to both you and God. Now, here's the twist to that. He will tell you that he himself has a pastor. And he himself has mentors and leaders that God, that he, that he has given permission to speak into their lives. Any pastor that cannot tell you the name of their pastor is probably in a danger zone. I had one guy say, say it like this, tell me who you're submitted to. Because if you can't put a name to it, then you're not submitted to anybody. Because theoretically, we can just say, well, I'm, I'm submitted. Okay, well, to who? Who are you submitted to? And how much are you going to allow them to lead you? So let's look at... At, at, at what Paul tells a young minister named Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 and 2, Timothy was a pastor. He said, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So according to the word of God, there are times when it is his responsibility to lovingly reprove us and to rebuke our actions. And you must give him permission to do that. You don't necessarily have to go to him and say, I give you permission to do this. But, but in your mind and in your heart, you have to say, okay, God, I'm submitted to him, and I'm going to allow him to speak into my life. If it's reproving me, if it's rebuking me. Because here's the thing. You are not going to make it to heaven without getting rebuked a time or two. I remember when I was a kid, I was a teenager, 16, 17 years old, me and a, and a buddy of mine who now pastors in Troy, Missouri, his name was Jim. We were sitting in the front row. He was talking. I was not really talking that much, that much. But it was a Wednesday night. There's a crowd a little bit bigger than, than tonight. You know, it was just another normal Wednesday night. I have no idea what he was teaching, so you could tell how much we were paying attention. And, and, and right at, at the wrong time, he looked down, and his eyes met me, and I was, I was leaning over to Jim, and I was saying something to him. Now, again, honest, God be honest, he had done most of the talking. But I got caught at the wrong time. I'm the one that got caught. And by the guy Rome, in front of God and everybody, there was 200, 300 people who said, said, Brother Billy, listen up, son. You've been talking through the whole service. It's time to stop talking and listen up. I wanted to crawl under the pew. My face turned as red as your shirt right there. 
I was so humiliated. And you know what? I was, I was angry for a while, for, for like a day or two. But, but <laughs> I'm just being honest. I was. I was like, man, he humiliated me, embarrassed me. But, but then I realized that he was right. And, and, and it produced, it, it started to produce humility in me whenever I allowed that word to come into my spirit. You know what? I didn't talk again in church. <laughs> At least not while he was preaching. <laughs> I didn't pass no notes. Now we got Facebook and all these other things that sometimes teachers, preachers compete with. I know of a pastor who would not let you be on, on your phone in church. He will call your name out. And he does call names out. I'm, not, I'm never going to do that. So I'm not a pastor here. I don't think Brother Gary Dornbach is going to do that either. But, but whatever it is, got to give your pastor permission to speak into your life. And so, uh, so he has to be a watchman. And he's got to let all of us know that when he sees something that is dangerous to you, he has to be able to speak that into you. And he is supposed to equip and to prepare you for the work of the ministry. I'll never forget Brother James Gross preached on the four faces of a pastor. And he took his text from Ezekiel chapter 1 about that beast that rose up and it had four faces. It had the face of a man and a lion and an ox and an eagle. And there were two particular faces that really stuck out at me. And he talked about how, how, how every pastor has like four sides to him and how we're going to see these four sides sometimes. We're going to see that we're going to see that face of an eagle sometimes. The eagle is that encouraging. It's that edification word. It's that time where we come and our knuckles are dragging the ground and our knees are weak, but he preaches a message of encouragement and we walk out filled with faith again. That's the face of the eagle. But then there's the face of the man. And the man is like, when the pastor gets discouraged, we have to realize he's only human. He's not always an eagle. He's not always an ox. He's not always a lion. He's a man too. And then there's the face of the lion. The lion's like bold. It's that time when fire is under his feet and he's pointing and he's preaching against sin. And we have to receive with meekness that word because it's that word that is able to save our souls. So we are all accountable to our pastor. God has structured the church so that the pastor is the spiritual and temporal leader. He is not to take this lightly as he understands he, the pastor, must give an account of your following of his leadership. Hebrews 13 and 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. As they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Now, I've heard people say, well, what do we do when the pastor tells us to drink, you know, arsenic-laced Kool-Aid? Are we supposed to obey that? And the word obey here in the Greek means to be persuaded of. And, okay, and the idea is that there's a burden of responsibility on pastors to teach the word of God, and it is your burden of responsibility to receive that word. And like the Bereans who went home and checked to whether those things were so. That's what the word obedience means. So, so we have to be obedient, which means you got to be in your word. So your relationship with your pastor, a couple of things. Number one, always remember that the pastor is there to help you get to heaven. Oh, I want to tell you this one thing. And, and the Lord showed me this just this week. I've, I've always read about how, how Israel developed these high places. And just this week, I read about how uh, Josiah, and he went and he just 
tore up everything. And he, 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 he tore down all, all of um, the idolatrous places of worship that Solomon had built. And great reform happened under Solomon. But the Lord began to show me this, how in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord began to instruct his people. He told them this. He said, make sure... Make sure that when you get into your promised land that you only serve your, your feasts and you only make your sacrifices at the place that I have appointed. Now, the first place was Shiloh. That's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And when David took Jerusalem, he took the Ark into the city of Jerusalem and later that became as we know now, the city of David, and that became the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle of, of God. But what happened was, at some point after they crossed Jordan, they said, we know that we're supposed to go there in Shiloh to worship, but think about it with me. Now we get in our car, I, I travel 33 miles one way, which is only about 35 minutes. It's not really that big of a deal. But what if we were in biblical times? <laughs> 33 miles with kids on the back of a camel. I mean, you think it's bad now traveling with kids. And, and some people live farther away than that. It was a huge inconvenience to them. So that's why the Bible says many places in the beginning, it's, it talks about how Judah had these great kings and they tore down everything, all the, all, all the places of idolatrous worship. But it still says Israel had secretly the high places. And what it means was that in the beginning, they weren't going to Jerusalem to worship God like they were supposed to be going. They were staying at home and offering their own sacrifices there at home. They built their own altars there. They built, and the Bible calls them high places. Now, eventually, they developed into places of idolatrous worship where they worshiped the sun and the moon and the stars and they made their children pass through the fire. But it did not start off that way. Start off quite innocent. And here's, here's another reason why. Not because of inconvenience's sake, but because they didn't want to be accountable to their priests. Because if you were to come and make a sacrifice, that priest had to inspect your sacrifice. If you're bringing some secondary sacrifice, you're saying, all I can do is offer this little turtle dove, and that high priest knows better than that. He knows how you've been living, and he knows a turtle dove is not the best you could do. He knows you got a whole, you got a hundred sheep at home, and he knows that there's one of them without spot or wrinkle, and you got to bring the best. So your sacrifices would cost you something in those days. So it literally was a sacrifice to bring a sacrifice. It was money on the table for them. And sometimes food off of the table. So it was just an inconvenience sake. But when you, and so that's how it started off. They said, oh, we're just going to stay home. We're going to worship. We're not going to be accountable to our priests. We know what the law is. And that generation, first of all, it started off innocently enough. But eventually it evolved and evolved and evolved until we get to the book of Malachi. And finally the Lord says through Malachi, he says, I want you to take those sacrifices that you're offering at home, by the way. And I want you to offer them to your governor. And he says, offer those sacrifices, the lame, the halt, the blind, the pitiful little sacrifices, the, you know, the sickly ones. He said, offer that to your governor. And he said, you wouldn't offer that to your governor, but you're bringing them to me. And so, so the issue was is they did not want to be accountable, and it was just simply inconvenient. And is it really any different in our day? 
People stay home on Wednesday night. I'm not condemning. I'm teaching. People, many people stay home for Wednesday nights because uh, it's just inconvenient. You're tired. You get home from a long day's work, and it's easier just to stay home. Take a long shower, jump in the jacuzzi, and go to bed about 930. But I tell you this. God will honor your obedience if you come. And you will grow if you will submit yourself to the man of God in your life. So your relationship to your pastor, first of all, always remember that the pastor is there to help you get to heaven. It is very heavy responsibility that he has been entrusted to. He, he prays many nights in prayer, in tears, and, and, and discussing the decisions of those things and those uh, things that he is called to lead and those whom he is called to develop. You may, uh, so we all need to realize that there will be times that you may not understand and you may not always agree with the direction of the church. I wish I had an hour to talk about this, but I only got five minutes. So don't, don't, don't get scared. Because I know what time it is. But let me say this. I just want to tell this one little story, and then I'll, I'll quickly move on. There was a lady once that I knew. She went to a very big church, a very popular preacher. And she was mightily used of God, greatly used. Somewhere down, somewhere down the line, I mean, when I see I mean, she was like, casting devils out of people and prophesying over people and teaching Bible studies. And she was known as a person of great power and authority. And, 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 and somewhere along the line, she got offended at her church and her pastor. And she got to the point where, and I know this for an absolute fact, she had this dream and this vision. And she said that the vision was God showed her that Ichabod was written on the doors of the church. Now, let me tell you, that church has went on to have even greater revival than it had then. So I don't know where she got this vision from. It was certainly not the Lord. But she left, and she ended up somewhere else. I can, I can only tell you this, that shortly after she left, mysteriously, she got fibromyalgia. And she has never fully recovered from that. Now, you can draw whatever conclusions you want. Maybe it's just coincidence. She's in her 50s. You know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I will tell you this. When you go against your pastor, you are, in, you are going against a man of God. You got to be careful. Because God does not care about your argument. He cares about your attitude. There is a wrong way to do the right thing. And you can be right in your argument and be wrong in your attitude. And it does not matter if your argument is 100% right. If your attitude is wrong, you are, it is just as bad as if your argument was wrong. And when you are, whenever you allow yourself to be offended, you know, people don't realize this, but offense is a spirit. You harbor, it is an evil spirit, just like pornography is a spirit, uh, just like anger can be a spirit, just like other things, you invite them into your home. And so people that are easily offended, you don't even, may not even understand it, but you need spiritual deliverance and it comes by submission. This unique type of spirit can only be broken when you allow yourself to be submitted to a man of God in your life. So God really does allow a pastor to see potential setbacks and dangers on the road ahead. This is why you have to let him speak in your life. He's on a level in, in a position sense that, that where God is going to show him things about us that we may not always see ourselves. So we have to trust his leadership. Why would you not? 
Consult with someone who prays for you, who loves you, and who hears from God for your life. There may be times when your pastor has to personally correct you. You have to be careful to, to, to not let these times give you a bad attitude or a bad spirit. Here are some things to consider. I need like three minutes to blow through this. Number one, your pastor and his family. It is important to recognize the special pressures put upon a pastor's family. Again, I need an hour to talk about this. I pastored before, and I can tell you this, until you've pastored, it is impossible. If you've been an associate pastor, it's not the same. If you've been an assistant, it is not the same. Until you have spent all night worrying about church problems, until your stomach is in knots over what could potentially happen, until there is no earthly wisdom that you could ever have that will give the answer to to church to these church problems and things that are coming to you until you've actually fought those battles you there's it's impossible and I can say this because I'm not the pastor here so I don't really care if you like me or not I hope you do but now our pastor he may not tell you these things but I can tell you he spent all night praying he's lost and not only him but his wife sister Jackie they have lost sleep at night over decisions that they had to make in this church and, and things in this church uh, and so so people need to allow the pastor and his family to be human don't expect the pastor, his wife, and children to be perfect because they are not perfect. They live in a glass bowl, as they say. And so, you know, everybody, you would expect the pastor to be perfect, but he is not perfect. They have struggles. They have victories. They have joys. They have sorrows. They have good days. They have bad days like we do, like every other family does. So we have to be mindful of the fact that a pastor is on call 24-7, 365 days a year. His schedule will be vastly different from your schedule. So your support of the pastor's family will be a great blessing to him as well. And I close it with this. And Sister Janae, come to the piano. I remember whenever we were pastoring, we were going through some rough times. My, uh, my wife uh, had, had just given birth um, to our second boy, Lane, and we were not getting sleep, needless to say, and we were tired. We, were, we had fight church battles all week long and we were just at a point where we just felt like we were about to break and and this sweet family came and knocked on our door one night it, we it was it was at that point where we were like man what are we gonna have for dinner tonight we haven't even thought about dinner I, I don't feel like cooking do you feel like cooking we don't have any money to go out to eat we just spent it on the church bills and i mean it's like we were like what are we gonna do and and so right at the time where we were about to throw our hands up in the air and just say we're fasting tonight this family comes knocking on our door and with this bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. You know what? Sometimes love is deep fried. <laughs> and it's got some buttermilk biscuits and brown gravy associated with it. Praise God. That's how to take care of your pastor. Don't ask. Don't call them up and say, hey, would you like dinner time? Just bring it by. Just do it. Because, you know, if you got to ask them, oh, no, we're fine. They're always going to say that. Just do it. Make them a pie. Bake them some cookies. Whatever you do, just bring them by. Let them know that you love them. Because you know what? Here's the thing about pastoring is whether anybody realizes it or not, you feel alone many times. And, 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 and even though in our hearts we know that the church loves us, sometimes you just need to be reminded. Sometimes, Sister Jackie needs the ladies just to gather around her and just say, hey, we're going to pray for you just because we love you. 
And sometimes, brother, our pastor needs the men to gather around him and say, man, we're going to pray for you. We're going to lift up your hands. We know you're fighting a battle. And you know what? I, I will tell you this, that just as Judah was the first one to go into battle, so our pastor is the first one to go into battle. He feels it the most. And the times when we have the biggest revivals, the very next day or that week, there is an attack on him. I know this because it happened to us. Every single time. I have assisted pastors before. I have been secondhand. I've been, I spent most of my ministry as a second, as, a, uh, as, as um, the second man. And I've, I've been in place where I've, I've, I've assisted one particular man for years, and we were close enough to know the battles that he fought. And he always shared them with me. And he would tell me, he would say, Bill, man, we had this blowout service uh, Sunday morning, and then Sunday night we had people get the Holy Ghost, and we had all these miracles happening. People are on cloud nine, but this is what happened Monday morning. My wife and I had a fight, or, or this happened, or that happened, and, and it would be, man, we need, we, need, we need just to pray for you right now because, you know, we have to cover him in prayer because he's covering us in prayer. So he needs somebody to cover him in prayer and his family and those three little kids that he has. Thank God for that. Let's stand to our feet right now. Amen. 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 I want you just to make a decision, a, a, a conscience decision right now as you come tonight. And I, want, I, w- I would like you to do two things. Number one, I want you to, to commit to God that you would do your best, your dead level best to be committed to this church, to, to be here when the doors are open. And secondly, that you will make it an effort to pray for your pastor and his family every single day. If you don't know what to pray for, just bless his socks off. Say, Lord, I want you to bless him with some cookies today and then go bake him. See, the Lord answered your prayer. Pray that God covers his head in the time of battle. Pray that God keeps him from the enemy because he he is not above failure and he needs our prayers. Would you come right now and do that with me for just a few minutes tonight?